turn to Matthew 19. Now, I'd imagine you probably noticed we like things customized. We like things fit to our own taste, our own preferences. For instance, if we were to take like a little church-wide trip and we're going to go to like three spoons after service today, would we all get the same thing? Absolutely not. Okay, we'd probably max out every single combination they have. We just like to have things met to our own preferences, our own desires, our own tastes. If we were ordering pizzas, some would like anchovies, others would not. Some would have onions, and we'd have all these preferences. And we, we like things personalized. I mean, do you know today you can actually personalize and customize your own athletic shoes, okay? You can do that. You can do whatever color you want or whatever sole. You can do that. We like it. We like anything from small things customized to customized homes. We, we love it that way, and creativity is great. I mean, can you imagine without creativity and all these options that, you know, life would just be one standard. There's just one choice. Now, I mean, it's, we actually live in a country, for instance, not only have freedom of expression, but, you know, we have a country that you can worship any way you want. We have freedom of religion. There's just one question I have. What does the one true God think about self-stylized spirituality. With the one true living God, the one who's made all things, the universe, the earth, every single person, what does he really think about designer faith? Does he really feel like, hey, you know what? You can do whatever you want to do. You've got the freedom to choose. If you like certain aspects of what I've revealed in the word, take it. If you want to make some stuff up? Great, go for it. If you want to jettison some stuff, if there's some stuff in the word that I've given you and that doesn't really fit with your own personalized view of spirituality, well, by all means, cut it out, leave it aside, ignore it. Or if you have it in your Bible, just never read it and never adhere to it. What does Jesus specifically think about customized Christianity? Now, I just want to tell you, for me, uh, ever since I became a Christian uh, back in my collegiate years, I, I've really, I just want to know Jesus as he is. I want to follow him as he's prescribed and described. And that's actually one of the beauties of Fellowship Bible Church. We're not into religious formalities and, and trying to create our own culture. We are truly interested in following Jesus, to know him, to experience his life, to grow deep in him. And as we grow deep, we're reaching out. We want to follow him. But what does following Jesus really look like? Well, you don't have to guess. You don't have to make it up. When you turn to Matthew 19, beginning in verse 13, he spells it out in Great detail and with real clarity. Now, I just want to give a warning before we go through this. Jesus is going to make some statements that are going to shock you. They're going to alarm you because they certainly did the initial disciples. But what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to approach him with humility. Now, we're going to come to this beginning in verse 13 here. We got this scene here. Remember, Jesus is always mentoring his men. Mentoring is a lot like parenting. There's a, there's a discipleship aspect where you're going to be working with people. And one of the ways that Jesus worked with his men is he actually addressed and corrected their failures. And we've got one of their failures right here, beginning in verse 13. Then there were some children 
who were brought to him, bringing these children being brought to Jesus, so that he may lay his hands on them and pray. And look at this. And the disciples, ta-da, they showed up. They rebuked them. Did you see that? The disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, hey, wait a second here. I happen to like children. Let the children alone. And do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now, the disciples, this word rebuke, pretty strong word, it has the idea that they're sternly warning. Luke records this exact same scene, and it actually refers to these children as babies. And so we have, like, these moms. They're probably bringing their little kids and their little babies. They would like Jesus to bless them. And that idea goes all the way back to Jacob, to Israel. He would lay his hands on his sons, and he blessed them. And the idea was that you would ask for God's divine favor upon this child. And so these parents, these women, are bringing these children. They're asking God to bless their children. And the disciples are going, Children in our society have really no importance. Yeah, they're a gift from God, but they have nothing to do with Jesus because Jesus is involved in a very important mission. Don't waste his time taking up with these little children. And so they were actually rebuking. I don't know if they were pushing the children away. They certainly certainly were giving them stern looks. Maybe they're trying to scare them. Maybe they're just being mean. Whatever it was, they were sternly rebuking these women and these children. And Jesus says... Stop. You let these children come to me. In fact, Jesus uses this situation to correct them, to teach them what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, you leave the little children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You see, if you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to follow me, you have to have the humility of a child. You've got to leave your self-importance and your pretenses, and all of your accomplishments and your achievements, you got to leave those aside. If you want to follow me, you got to have like a faith, like a child. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He isn't saying you got to be childish, you got to act immature. What he's saying is you got to be childlike. Now, some people misinterpret Jesus here by saying like, well, what he's saying is you pretty much just have to be a simpleton. And live simplistically, and you just kind of check your mind out at the door, and you never engage it. Actually, the opposite is true. Just a few uh, chapters away, he's going to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You see, to know Christ and to follow him is to engage fully the senses. Use your mind, everything that God has given you, for the glory of God to love him with it. But he's saying, if you want to follow me, though, you have to have the humility of a child. You see, a child is uncomplicated. They've got a trusting dependence. They're not afraid to ask for help. They they want to know. They're willing to follow. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? You've got to have humility. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like this. If you're in your own just walk with God. You're sensing a distance, a tension. It's just like you're kind of in this rat race. Your prayer life is completely rushed. Your time in the Word, it's not daily. You're doing good if it's monthly. Remember this. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. You see, if we're going to follow Jesus, 
we follow him with humility. Whether that be on our knees physically, but certainly in our heart, we always come to Jesus with humility because that is how we follow him. And it's really interesting that he says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus is making an interesting statement here. He's saying that not only do you have to be like a child, but it also seems to be inferring that the kingdom of heaven will even be populated with children. It's like he is making a statement And this is so in keeping with God himself. Those who have mental deficiencies or those due to age, like they're infants or small children, should they pass away, they are to be in the presence of God himself. They are in his kingdom. It's not that they haven't inherited Adam's sin nature. It's not that they're deserving of heaven. It's just that they're not culpable in the same sense. They don't willfully unbelieve and they're not actually capable of faith. And it seems that God just sovereignly says, I choose you. You are to be in my kingdom. And so these very children, if they should even pass away, they, they go to the presence of God because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. But we have to have that same kind of humility. Well, it says there in verse 15, he laying his hands on them, he departed from there. It's as if Matthew is showing us that Jesus, this humble, loving Savior, he also is moving to the cross. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the perfect son of God about to go to the slaughter. So do you want to follow Jesus? Well, let me tell you, you have to have approaching him with humility. That's the only way. Let me tell you something else about following Jesus. You have to address the sin issues of the heart. You see, the Pharisees, they didn't come to Jesus with humility. They came with pride and arrogance and testing. Well, here we're going to have a a scene. History records this man as the rich, young ruler. We find in verse 20 that he, uh, verses 20 and 22, that he's rich, that he's young. He's somewhere between the ages of 20 and 40, and he is a ruler. Luke actually records this. As a ruler, he was likely a ruler in the synagogue. And as a young man, this would have been an extreme position. He would be rather elite because you had to be at least 40 to be a ruler. And yet he was a ruler. He was rich. He was young. And verse 16, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Here comes this man, and he's got it all together, and it's kind of like he's saying, hey, what about the people that have got it all together? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What good thing do I need to do? Now, this guy is pretty remarkable. First of all, he's got the right motive. He isn't asking, hey, how could I get more wealth? How could I have more power? He's saying, I'd like to know, how do you truly have spiritual life? He also has the right attitude. Mark actually records the same incident. He literally records that this man falls on his knees when he comes to Jesus. And he asks this. He wants eternal life. What do I need to do? I'd like to obtain it. And he comes to the right source. Think about it. Who's he coming to? He's coming to the very one who could truly offer him eternal life. That's what 1 John 5, verse 11 says. The witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He's coming to the right source. He's got the right motive. He's got the right attitude. He's asking the right question. He's saying, hey, what do I need to do? I want to obtain eternal life. And notice what Jesus said to him. 
He said, why are you asking me what is good? What Jesus is doing here, he's saying, you know that God alone is good. Are you coming to me with the understanding that I am the one who is good and can actually answer that question? Why are you asking me, verse 17, what is good? Think about it. This man, religious, a follower of Yahweh. Uh, He's a a recognized religious leader. He's got wealth. And people in the Jewish society ascribed that if you had wealth, it was a blessing from God, which indeed it may be. He's saying, I'm missing something. I don't have it. I don't have eternal life. I know it. I see the absence of joy, peace, connection with God, communion with the Holy One. I would like it, though. What do I need to do? And this is where Jesus just totally throws everyone for a curve. Look what he says at the end of verse 17. He says, you know, there's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. Why, why would Jesus say that? Keep the commandments? That's not the right answer. I mean, what Jesus says right here, he'd get an F in some Bible colleges and seminary in evangelism class. That's not the answer. Keep the commandments. No, Jesus should have said, "What? well, just believe in me, right? What is Jesus doing here about this? Keep the commandments. Well, so he, he says, well, the guy's like, well, which ones? Look at this. Verse 18, then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus is doing is he's actually taking the Ten Commandments. He is selecting five of them. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with a man's relationship with God. The next six deal with man's relationship with each other. He actually gives five. The one he omits is about coveting. And he says, how about these? Do you do these? And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Whoa, we get some real inside look to this guy. You see, he truly had made the real effort to keep the commandments of God. And here's the point. You see, this man was blinded by his own self-confidence. He was self-righteous. And this was so in keeping with the Pharisees because they believed in the externalization of the religion. They believed that if you could outwardly keep the laws, you were considered right with God. And yet that was the total violation of what God established with Abraham. You were only made right with God by faith. What this man failed to realize is that God is concerned with the heart. And why is Jesus talking about law instead of giving him gospel? Do you know why? Because he is using the law to show the man the depth of his depravity and his sin. Remember, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, here's a verse that you want to remember. He says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You see, God gives the law to show that not only is his his standards extremely high, but that we are incapable of keeping them. We are incapable of living a life without lust. 
We're incapable of living a life without hatred. We break God's laws, hence we need a savior. But this man, true in the keeping of of Pharisees, he never sees it. He doesn't see his sin. He is self-righteous. He is wrapped up in self-confidence. And what Jesus is doing is he's using the law like a mirror. And he's putting it up in front of the man. And this this mirror is to reveal the man's sins. But he doesn't see the blemishes. He doesn't see where he is missing it. He is filled with pride. You see, the Pharisees externalized the faith. And Jesus was always driving it to the heart. They said, well, I don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, you know, if you even look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery. Well, people would say, well, I don't hate my enemies or I'm supposed to hate my enemies. And Jesus says, if you hate it's the equivalent of doing murder. It's tantamount to it. If you, you see, Jesus drove at a heart issue. The law was meant to show not only just from the external behavior, but from the motives and the convictions and the values that drive your heart, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that's what Jesus is doing. You see, when you are all about performing and doing standards, it creates a self-righteous religion, and it is deceptive. It only not only does it twist you because you can never actually keep your standards. And so you're always rationalizing. But it also it's it's deceptive. You think that you're going to be fine with God because you're trying hard. Friends, you and I, we need to see our sin. If you do not see your sin, you don't need a savior, do you? If you don't see your sin, you do not need a savior. And what Jesus is saying is, you, you have to come to me on my terms. You know, in contemporary evangelism, we've become woefully deficient of actually showing people their sin. Kind of what happens today is now is that we just try to figure out what people's psychological needs are. You want happiness, joy, you're not feeling well, and we present Jesus as the great panacea. Okay? You want to be happy? What you need is Jesus. He's going to be like a divine friend for you, and he will just give you happiness. So just believe in Jesus. And that's and people are, man, we got felt needs, and we want quick fixes. And so when you present Jesus like this, there's a lot of people going, really? Yeah, I don't like being upset or unhappy. Sure, I'll, I'll try this Jesus. And so they do. And it kind of explains why we have a multitude of people, after their supposed conversion, There is really no change in their life. You know what's going on? They never really came to Jesus as their savior from their sin, that he died in their place. And they most certainly are not willing to follow him as Lord. And Jesus is showing this man his sin. Well, the young man said, you know what? Verse 20, all these things I have kept, but you know what? I'm still lacking. What am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, I want you to go and I want you to sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And the answer to your question, you want eternal life and come follow me. You see what Jesus is doing is he's showing the man his sin. Remember, like in the book of Romans, the first three chapters actually show sin and how we're sinful. And then once you understand that you're sinful and that your heart is broken and that you are unholy and you are dead spiritually, then you will truly embrace Christ and the gospel. 
Well, now what Jesus is saying, really, you, you feel like you've kept all these. Well, so Jesus is going to take the surgery one step further. And he says, listen, why don't you do this? Why don't you go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor? And you want eternal life? Come, follow me. Now, he says, if you want to be teleos, perfect, mature, full grown, this is what you need. Go sell it. Now, Jesus isn't setting forth the terms for salvation that you have to sell everything and give to the poor in order to truly come to know God. What he's doing, though, is he's exposing the man's true heart. He's not making a case for like universal asceticism where you totally give everything away and you just live a life of just complete deprival. Nor is he saying that he's recommending poverty as a means for salvation because even the poor still long to have money. That's not the issue. There are some extremely wealthy people in the Bible. Abraham, Boaz, David, Job. It's not an issue of money. What Jesus is doing is he's driving at the man's heart. And you see, this man has an idol in his life. He has a God, but it is not the one true triune God. Notice this. He gives him an answer. He says, did you really want eternal life? Then sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. I will, you'll be amply supplied with salvation and all of the eternal benefits that come from knowing the one true God. And you just come follow me. But verse 22, when the young man heard this statement, look at this. He went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. You see, what Jesus did is he put himself alongside the man's wealth. He's saying, which will it be? Will it be me? Will you follow and do as I've asked? Or is it going to be your riches? But which one will it be? That's what's taking place here. Now the surgery has hit the root of the problem. And this man's security and his identity is in his wealth. It has become like an idolatrous God to him. And when Jesus actually confronts him on it, he's like, I can't give this up because this is everything to me. In fact, this is me. Now, as Christians, do we literally, do we really have to sell and give it, give it all up? Well, no, but you do have to do this. You have to be fully yielded to Christ. Scripture nowhere ever commands another person to actually give up all their wealth to actually come and to follow Jesus and to know him. But what Jesus is doing is he's addressing this man's sin issue. That he is an idol in his life. This young rich ruler is kind of in contrast to a guy in Luke 19 called Zacchaeus. Remember the wee little guy on the tree? Remember that? Jesus shows up at his house. Obviously, this man is genuinely converted. He truly believes in Christ. He wants to follow because he actually says, listen, I'm going to give half my income. I'm going to give it to the poor. And I'm, if I've defrauded anyone, which likely he had as a Roman tax collector, I'm going to actually pay, repay them back four times. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house for the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And the man's behavior indicated the reality that he was really trusting Christ. He was willing to follow. In fact, he was willing to give and live generously because he's now believing and united with Christ. He has a new identity and a new security. But for this man, he walks away sorrowful. You see, what's happening here is that this guy 
This guy has an idol, a god. And let me just tell you, every person is a worshiper. It's just that we all worship different things, different people, different gods. You see, whatever uh, controls your values, priorities, what is your passion in life, what you find yourself always thinking about and longing for, when you believe that you're fine and well and safe and secure, your identity if wherever you find that, that is your God. If it's the one true God, if you see your identity is it's Jesus Christ, I'm his, he's mine, I'm united with him, I've got forgiveness, I have life in him, then you can know that the one true God is your God. But if it's your money or your finances or your power or your prestige or your acceptance or how well you're doing, then you find that you've probably got an idol in your life. If you're uh, if you were all about power or respectability or financial security or even your adherence to orthodoxy and it's your faith is really not in the one true God, you have a heart trouble. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to address the heart issues in your life. You guys ever uh, read J.R.R. Tolkien or his book, Lord of the Rings, or seen the movie? You probably have seen some of the people seen the movie, yeah? Remember that? There's this little hobbit in the Shire. Remember that? He's got a great name, Bilbo Baggins. Okay, please do not name your kid that, okay? But anyway, he'd have a tough life. And so remember that guy? And and you know, Mr. Bilbo Baggins, you know, he's he's got this ring that he found. It's the ring of power. And that ring just has kind of an influence on him, and he's going to pass it on to his nephew. He's not really sure what the ring is. He's going to pass it on to his nephew, Frodo, but he finds that this this ring, it just has a power over him. In fact, whoever has the ring, it has a power over them. Remember, there's a guy, uh, his name is Gollum. In fact, there you go. Look at that. There you go. There's his high school yearbook picture right there. You see that? All right. Do you remember? He had the ring for a long time. Do you remember that? And he used to, like, he used to just hold it in front of him and be like, my precious, my precious. Remember that? He was totally all about the ring, man. It was, everything was about the ring. If he didn't have it, he was consumed about how I could get it back. Because that ring was everything, and that ring distorted him physically, emotionally, mentally. After all, that's what idols do. You want to end up looking like this, do you? No, we're not going to do it. And that's why the Avon lady comes visits, all right? And you put all this makeup on, right? But friends, just because you can make yourself look good on the outside, let me assure you, if you have an idol respectability, power, prestige, money, whatever it might be, your heart gets twisted like that because that's what idols do. Jesus is addressing this man. He's he's saying, you have a heart issue. You want to follow me? We have got to address this. That's what Jesus does with each one of his people. He's not going to let the heart issues of anger and rage and lust and pride and idols remain untouched. He is going to address them so that we will follow him like a child willingly follows. Now, what this man should have done, he should have cried out and said, Jesus, help me. I am caged in greed. I simply can't fly to you. I need help. Please help me. But we don't see that at all. He actually walks away. Now, you see why he walked away? Grieving, verse 22. For he was one who owned much property. Or you might want to just say this. He was owned by much property. 
Or my disciples, they're, they're watching this. They're like, whoa, here's a guy who really wanted eternal life. And yet he's walking away in sorrow. And so Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? I underlined this in my Bible. If that guy was rich 2,000 years ago, what am I? And what are you? And Jesus said, verse 24, Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of of God. And so the camel, kind of the biggest animal they knew of, eye of the needle, smallest little opening, they had it in their houses, and they're like, camel going through that? Whoa, that, that's, that'll never happen. And what is Jesus doing? He's using hyperbole. Okay, now, there's some modern commentators that there is this gate, it's called the needle eye gate, and it's, it's at Jerusalem, and it was like small enough where the camel had to get through on his knees, and he, could have to, he had to strip him down of everything, and he had to force him through. And they're saying, well, that's what you have to do. You have to just kind of release all this stuff so you can get through that gate. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, I don't think so, because that gate hadn't been built yet, okay? That gate that they're referring to wasn't built until after the destruction of Jerusalem when it was rebuilt. What Jesus is using hyperbole, and he's trying to get your attention and my attention, listen, it is as likely for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says, he says, you can't do it. When the, when the disciples heard this, they were actually astonished. You see that verse 25? And they said, well, then who can be saved? And then looking to them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You want to be in the kingdom of heaven with God, with Christ in his realm? He's saying, you've got to come with humility and you've got to address these heart issues. This is a key teaching of the New Testament. First Timothy, chapter six, verse 17 says this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you know why God has given you resources? Why you have what you have? God actually wants you to provide for your family. He wants you to enjoy what he's given you. I mean, to, to be able to use things and to buy things and to buy food and go, God, you're so good and I rejoice in what you've given me. But never fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. And frankly, it is so easy to do. In fact, we live in a society that has made money. It's God. The disciples are hearing this and they're like, whoa, they're astonished. Do you see that in verse 25? Whoa, they're literally blown away by what Jesus is having to say. And they say, well, who can be saved? If that's the case, how is it possible? And verse 26, Jesus looking them said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know what? You're right. It is impossible for man to experience salvation. Apart from me. And I'm going to address the heart issues. And you can't have me unless we deal with the idols in your life. When Jesus says, come, follow me, that means literally we do as he's asked. If you haven't come to Christ recognizing he's the only savior for your sins and that he's Lord and you have a willingness and a desire to follow him, however incomplete that may be. Perhaps you've settled for a different gospel and a different Jesus. 
Because Jesus makes it crystal clear. You follow me, you will come and you will do as I've asked. And only God can do a work like that. When you see yourself wanting to go God's way, let me assure you, that is God at work in your heart. So you want to follow Jesus? You've got to address the issues of your heart. On this issue of money, how do you know that you're following Jesus and really that he's addressed this issue? When you see that there is a willingness and desire to just regularly give to God's kingdom work, there's a joy. You want to participate. You're involved. When you see that happening in your life, you can see that there's a movement of God and he's addressed that idol in your life. Let me give you the third. If you want to follow Jesus, he ends it up here in verses 27 through 29. You've got to be anticipating the future blessings of his kingdom. Well, then Peter said to him, behold, let, this is just like Peter. Jesus, wait a second here. Wait a second. Got to speak here. Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Peter cannot let this rest. Jesus, we want you to know, unlike the guy that just walked away, we've done it. We have left it all to follow you. And indeed, they had. Don't get the idea that these guys were really poor and they just had nothing better to do. They walked away from their fishing businesses. Matthew was a tax collector. He was very wealthy. He could never have that business again. Jesus said to them, you know what? Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when I establish my kingdom in the future, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Just as promised in Daniel chapter 7, Jesus the Messiah is going to reign. And Revelation 20 speaks of this millennial kingdom where Christ reigns for a thousand years. He sits on the throne of David and he reigns on this earth. And Jesus says, you are going to have governing authority with me. Yes, you have made some temporal earthly sacrifices, but they're going to be tremendously uh, compensated. Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake... My namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. You leave this for me. You set it aside because you're going to follow me. You will follow me to the ends of the earth and to the homes of the broken, like we just sang. Know this, because of your faith in me and my work in you, you will be blessed with my presence, my provisions, my people. Whatever small sacrifice you have made, you will be compensated hundredfold. Friends, I encourage you to invest, not in the short term, but in the long term and in the future. And if we and I are we're going to follow Christ as Christians, we must follow on his terms and not ours. And what will that look like? That looks like that every time we come to the Lord, we come with humility. That we approach him with humility, that we address the sin issues in our heart because God wants a heart that is completely his and that we're anticipating the great blessings of the future. We're not living for the here and now. We're looking for the future coming of our king and his kingdom. I was doing some reading and they said, like, how to capture a monkey. Okay, you guys do some reading like that. And apparently one of the things they do, apparently very effective, is you get a, a glass jar that has a very narrow opening where the monkey can just get his little empty open paw into it. And you put inside that jar like some fruit, something that the monkey wants. OK, and so what happens is he slips his little hand in there and he grabs onto that fruit. OK, but then he wants to get it out, but he can't. 
He can't get it because his hand is grasped on that little piece of fruit. And he's, and he's there and he's trying to fool with this. And you just apparently walk up and put a little net around him and put him in a box. I don't know what you get. But you get your monkey that way in case you were trying to do that. You want to start a zoo at your house or something. Well, you know what? That's what's wrong with this man. He has put his hand upon something that's grasped and yet he wants freedom and life. In fact, he wants eternal life. But until you're willing to let go and fully yield to the Savior, to follow him and to know him as Savior and Lord, you're like a little monkey grasping onto like a piece of fruit. And you cannot know Christ unless you're truly yielded him and to the life he offers. So do you want to experience life? You come to Christ as Savior and Jesus as Lord. As Christians, we must follow Jesus on his terms. Not ours. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for your word. And our desire is to follow you. So God, give us a vision of what it means to walk with you in humility. Lord, you're addressing heart issues even as we speak. Lord, cleanse us from within. Fill us with your power. And fill us with the hope of eternity and the greatness of joy in you. We ask this in Jesus' name.